Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on Wednesday, September 15th of 2021. Our guest today is former prosecutor and now current criminal defense attorney, Robert K. Corbett, who is joining us from Charlotte, North Carolina. He's a friend of the show. Welcome back, Robert. Hey, thank you for having me. I enjoy being here. Oh, we really enjoy having you. We love the bow tie and we love the fact that you've got, you know, your gamer headsets on from your son. Always love that. Well, everyone needs a trademark, so I've decided that these will be my two. (laughs) Fantastic, sir. Well, we've got um, some updates on a case that we've been following here on True Crime Daily. Plus, we have a new case that is really quite baffling. So here's what we're looking at this week. A young couple goes on this cross-country camping trip for several weeks. Now, the boyfriend comes back, and he's back home in Florida. But where is his girlfriend? No sign of her. She's missing. Her mother has not heard from her since August. The boyfriend is not talking and reportedly not cooperating with investigators. But first, a little bit of justice has been served here, but honestly, there can never be a resolution in a case like this. This is out of Ohio, and this is a mother who admitted to killing her six-year-old son and tossing his body in the river. She has been sentenced, but the little boy's body is still missing. Robert, this is a tough case. We've been following it here. The one thing about this is, I, I dare to say, in this case, justice has been, if if not satisfactory, if it's if we don't feel satisfied with with the with the sentence here, we can say it's been rather swift because the murder happened in February, and we've got a sentencing now here in September. That that's pretty rapid, don't you think, for a murder case? Um, definitely. And not just in terms of during the, the times that we're in, and that's probably overused, overwrought phrase, that COVID has caused court systems just around the country to experience delays in terms of getting cases to trial, getting cases resolved. But even taking that out, um, that is a very quick turnaround from charging arrest to entering a plea. And what it tells me, or what I would assume is that the defense prosecution, probably more so the defense, recognizing that this is not a case 
that needs to be drawn out, um, either like for the family, for the public, the type of outcry that it has caused. And the best thing to do in terms of to ensure that it's not a potential death penalty case, because you say all homicide cases are, Ohio still does have the death penalty. That's probably maybe a consideration of, look, if you're willing to come to the table, get this done quickly, you have already given a statement. Um, this is the best it's going to get. But if you delay this any further, then that offer is going to be withdrawn. Right. And it has. The death penalty is not part of this. Right. You know, the thing about this case, Robert, is that so many of our regular listeners and viewers had very strong opinions about this case. I have to admit, I did as well, because the the circumstances are so heinous. You know, when a mother kills a child, and it's the way in which this child was killed that is just so very disturbing, because all I can think of is the terror that this little boy experienced for the last few seconds and minutes of his life. There can be no worse feeling than knowing that your mother is trying to abandon you, driving away, leaving you alone in a park to die. And he was clinging on to her car, trying to get back in because he was so scared. And in that process, she ran him over and he was killed. So for me, that terror that little boy felt, I cannot imagine anything more horrific, especially when it's coming from your own mother. Yeah, and then that's, pro well, not probably, that definitely weighed into the decision that the court rendered in that she was convicted or pled guilty to murder, not aggravated murder, which they, which they have in Ohio. And she could have been eligible after 15 years, for, excuse me, eligible for parole after 15 years. Um, but the judge ruled she wouldn't be eligible for parole until after 21. And that's probably due to the egregious nature of the crime. And even at the point of sentencing, her apparently not showing any remorse for what happened, what she did. No, I've never heard her say, you know, explain anything. There is some context that we will be getting into, some background, her family background, horrendous things that were done to her as a child. And so in many ways, she has also been uh, a victim of, of horrendous abuse, but you don't get to take that out on a six-year-old. I'm sorry. Okay, so let, let's talk about this case. This is the case of Brittany Gosney. She's the mother of three who back in February tried to abandon all three children in the park. And remember, the littlest one, James, is the one who ran toward the car, holding onto the car. Now, here's the amazing thing. Those children were hogtied and gagged. And somehow, little James, with the strongest, fiercest desire to live, managed to untie himself and run after his mother's car. And he is the one who got run over. And then the she just left him and the other two there. And then she came back to get them. So we're, we're going to get into the details of that. So uh, this happened... Um, and she tried to, she and her boyfriend tried to cover this up by, right. by saying, oh, you know, we put James to bed and, um, you know, he was in his pajamas and we don't know where he is. And, and they actually are the ones who went to the police department to report him missing. Right. And right. then the police are like, your stories are not adding up. And the whole thing unravels at the police department. Then she allegedly confesses. And of course, Robert that was 
one of the issues was whether that confession was at all admissible at that time because she did not have an attorney representing her. So we're going to get into this whole murky legal area and how it affected this case. So let's let's get to the sentence. This week on Monday, September 13th, Brittany Gosney was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 21 years, as you mentioned, extended from its usual. The sentence was part of a plea deal that was reached last month in August, and she agreed to plead guilty to one count of murder, two counts of endangering children. Now, she's a 29-year-old mother from Ohio. She has two surviving children. Those are the two other children who were tied and gagged and abandoned at the park. However, she also has another child that she gave up for adoption a long time ago, and we're going to get into the details of that, but just so you all can can have perspective here, she was raped when she was 12 years old and she gave birth. So that gives you some context of what she experienced growing up and maybe why she had, honestly, terrible parenting skills, right? This is this was her environment. And then she was pulled from her father's home. She was removed from there and grew up in foster care. But we're going to get into that. I want to get back to the details of what she's facing and what, what the facts of this crime are. So Gosney originally was facing 16 felony charges, including kidnapping and tampering with evidence. She originally, when arrested, pleaded not guilty in March. And she claimed not guilty by reason of insanity. And then she had a competency evaluation in April, and the court found that she was fit to stand trial. And many of you who are our regular listeners and viewers, you probably remember we played a video from court, her very first appearance. And Robert, in that first appearance, Um, she told the judge, I have a learning disability. I don't know what's going on. Where am I? I don't understand. And he didn't have an awful lot of patience for her at that moment. And many of you who like to comment on YouTube said and predicted, this is the beginning of an insanity defense or incompetence, mental incompetence. And it didn't work. Now, Robert, we see that all the time. It's almost like it's, it's become the go-to defense. Oh, you know, yeah, I can't stand trial. Yeah. And I don't know if if it's if I could say it's a it's a go to defense. Competency is going to be a low threshold. And what you have is that for whatever in terms of mental defect, if they don't meet that absolutely, you know, low threshold, that you know, low barrier, then they can't stand trial. And then the court has to see if they're going to either by medication, can they become competent? Um, so and you know, perhaps as an argument that anybody that is willing to do this in terms of to their children, anyone that went through what she has gone through from childhood up to adulthood, there are some emotional scars. There's something going on with her, obviously. Um, so even though you may be low functioning, um, you can still be found competent. So for her, um, you know, it's possibly in terms of malingering, making everything up, or they could actually have been or is something there, but it's not enough to say she's not competent to go forward to trial. She can't assist in her own defense. 
All right. Thank you. I appreciate that because it's something we talk about a lot here because we we feel like certainly in the cases we cover here, it's like, oh, we can already see the seeds being planted on this one. Yeah. And, and we've like really not run into, I think maybe there's been one case, maybe out of all of the cases we cover where, you know, competency is, is declared for a period of time incompetent, then as you said, they get some kind of assistance. It could be medication, it could be therapy, and then the person is made a little bit stronger and um, a, a clearer of thinking and is right. able to stand trial. We've seen that as well. We've seen yeah, delays. So, yeah, so I've seen those in terms of being competent, uh, well, probably initially incompetent, but taking medication, um, and I've seen people who even with medication, they don't, they're, they just, they don't become competent for trial, but regarding the not guilty by reason of insanity, that is very rare. I think I read something a while ago that even nationwide, I think, um, 90 is 90 something percent ineffective in terms mm-hmm. of people who prevail, um, using that as a defense. Yeah. I, I, I think that makes sense. I, I I can certainly see that. All right, let's go over the facts of this crime. And then you all can weigh in on whether you believe that this is a fair and just sentence. So on February 26th of this year, which was a Friday, it's important because all this kind of happened over a weekend and that always gives you perspective to understand what was unraveling in a few days. Brittany Gosney drove her three children to Rush Run Wildlife Area in Ohio. And prosecutors say that her three children, ages six, you know, that's little James, six, seven, and nine years old, were hogtied by their hands and feet and were gagged with rags in their mouth. She left the children in the parking lot area, and that is when she tried to abandon them there. Six-year-old James Hutchinson somehow untied himself, grabbed on, and he got rolled over, killed in the process. So she leaves, goes home or goes somewhere, does some thinking, um, I guess, confers with her boyfriend, and she goes back about 30 to 40 minutes later, and she picks up the three children. So two of them are still alive, and James, at this point, is dead. So this plan did not work out. And in case you're wondering what was the plan, the plan was that she was going to get rid of her children because her boyfriend, 43-year-old James Hamilton, according to her, didn't want the kids around, wanted them gone. And so she was going to placate her boyfriend and just get rid of her kids. That was the master plan. Okay. So now we have James is dead and the other two kids have been retrieved. Everybody's back in the house. They put James in a room and then these two you know, the couple starts figuring out what the heck are we going to do now? So according to court records, Brittany and Hamilton, because he has the same first name as James, so I don't want to get everybody confused here. Brittany and Hamilton then decide that at 3 a.m. on Sunday morning, okay? So Sunday morning is really the middle of the night when you think about it. They tie a cement block to little James's body. They drive over to Lawrenceburg, Indiana, just on the other side of the Ohio state line, which is about 50 miles away from what where they live. And after tying this concrete block to little James's body, they toss him in the river and he has never been found and they have searched and they have searched and they have never found this little boy. They have never found this sweet little boy. So 
Then Brittany Gosney and her boyfriend come up with this brilliant plan that they're going to go to the police department on Sunday. On Sunday, they go to the police department. Oh my God, James is missing. Oh, what are we going to do? This is terrible. Help us. So police, you know, fire everything on social media. A little boy is missing. Here's a picture of him. He's as cute as could be. And um, everyone starts searching. And Robert, as this is is going on as they're asking more questions about like, well, when did you last see him? Like, what happened? Was there a break? And blah, 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 blah. Did the little boy run away? Their stories start to unravel. And so, according to WXIX-TV, Brittany's attorney has now said that all those statements that she made to the detectives had to be thrown out if there was going to be a trial because her rights had been violated because when she made this alleged confession, she didn't understand her rights at the time. And that's the interesting part of this. Had this gone forward, Robert, do you think that the confession, especially since there's no body, like where is little James? How strong of a case do you think this would have been had it gone to trial? Had it gone to trial, if her statement um, does not come in, then that makes it an extremely difficult case for the prosecution. And I don't know what the two other children could have said in terms of what happened to their brother. Um, in terms of, I guess they could shed some light on this is what Brittany did in terms of taking them out, that they were tied. They saw perhaps James get loose and maybe they saw James run to the car. But in terms of that interaction, what occurred, they may not have been able to see all of that. So the strongest evidence, regardless, was going to be Brittany's own words. Now, whether or not that would have been suppressed, though, I understand in terms of why the defense attorney would say that. Uh, you know, if I was in the same shoes, I'd probably say that as well. But you don't have to be read your Miranda rights in terms of telling you have the right to remain silent unless you are charged, unless you have been arrested. So at this point of where they are questioning her and then they're saying, wait a minute, things aren't making sense. Your story is falling apart. At that point, if she's not under arrest and then she just says, okay, look, this is what happened. This is what I did. If it came out during that, then that's not really proper grounds. Well, you can always make the motion. You can ask the judge to keep it out, but I, that's a hard <laughs> hill to climb. Um, in terms of being successful and keeping out the statement for that reason. And Robert, um, it's not like she was ever picked up by the police. She's the one who walked into the police department of her free will. She's the one who instigated this conversation with police. She right, could have so, left at any time, right? Right. As long as it's voluntary, they don't have to tell you you have the right to remain silent. Mm, very interesting. So uh, a little bit about the boyfriend here so we can understand, you know, his his fate is still in play here. James Hamilton, Gosney's boyfriend, was indicted on charges of kidnapping, abduction, child endangerment, tampering with evidence and gross abuse of a corpse, but not with murder, not with murder, because mm -hmm. I guess based on the children's testimony, based on her own accounts, he was not there when James was killed, but he was there allegedly and part of it in the disposal of the body. So on August 24th, he pleaded guilty to kidnapping, gross abuse of a corpse, and two counts of child endangerment. James Hamilton faces sentencing in October, so we will find out his fate next month. 
He faces a maximum of 19 years in prison. That according to the Butler County Journal News newspaper. Okay. Now this to me is fascinating. Okay. Remember, Brittany has said that the reason she did all of this is because she wanted to please her boyfriend to get rid of the children. Okay. This is where, to me, it gets very juicy. WLWT-TV reports that James Hamilton's wife, he's married, was in court when he pleaded guilty in August. Now listen to this. Priscilla Hamilton is putting the blame on Brittany. She said, quote, Brittany always been mean to those kids She was not forced to do nothing. I've been with James Hamilton for 17 and a half years. He's never forced me to do anything. That is Priscilla Hamilton, his wife. Thoughts, Robert? Well, the fact that she knows Brittany and knows Brittany's children um, is surprising because it means that these three, I guess, have some type of relationship. Uh, So I wonder in terms of how much does she know or did she know about Brittany and Hamilton's relationship? But when you when mentioned in terms of Brittany doing this for the purpose of or trying to you know keep James or what have you, it kind of has you know shades of the, the Susan Smith case out of South Carolina, of who unfortunately like years ago you know did something similar um, with her children, and then going to the police and claiming how they were abducted by some unknown person, um, all in, you know, because of some other relationship that she had. I find this fat. I always find it fascinating when the wife, right? So here's this man having an affair with another woman. And now he's embroiled in this is an alleged participant. All this has admitted to his participation, right? And yet she's standing by her man. Yeah, I was going to say the old country song, Stand By Your Man, right? Tammy, can I say, why not? Yes, she's standing by her man in the middle of this horrible, horrible case where poor little James is dead and missing and horrible things have been done to the other surviving children. Yet she's saying, oh, my husband would never do anything like that. It's all Brittany's fault. And you know what? It may very well be all Brittany's fault. But man, on top of all of this, there is this drama, right? Just just too much drama. Oh, and here's the last thing Priscilla had to say about her husband. He's not the monster everyone's making him out to be. He's really not. But yeah, so it puts her in that situation of when people ask, you've been married to him for 17 years. What signs did you see or what could you have done to prevent this? So catch 22, where she has to say that, He's not that kind of person. He would not do this. It has to be all on Brittany. Um, otherwise, then she's married to a monster, knows he is a monster, didn't do anything to stop it. So what does that say about her? So oh. I'm sure that's that's in her mind as well. Yes. And let's not forget, he hasn't been sentenced yet. So I'm sure she's dry, trying to drive some public pressure here. It's like, now, hold on a second. Don't, don't be as harsh on him as you've been on Brittany because... You know, he only did a part of this and he's a good guy and she's she's the bad one. She's the monster to use a word that she used. So we'll see if if that works at all. Now, 
I want to get back to Brittany. I alluded to this a little earlier when we started talking about this, about her background and her troubled childhood, according to her attorney. So he said that Brittany had previously contacted public assistance agencies, asking them for help to take the children because she was overwhelmed. And this is a discussion that we had in previous podcasts about, you know, when, when you as a parent reach this limit where you can't anymore, there are other options. Yes. These social services agencies fail without question. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I realize it's not that easy, but one of the things she could have done was literally to walk into the police station to say, I can't, you must help me with these children right now, you know, and that boom, puts it right on their lap. Would this have simply maybe delayed something like this? I don't know. It's possible. What do you make of that, Robert? Yeah, when I when I heard in terms of that aspect of it, it made me think in terms of one, mental health um, is something that is not taken seriously enough at times, I think in our in our criminal justice system, there needs to be more access to, to resources. Um, and if she, but, and we say, you know, in terms of 2020, you know, hindsight, you know, Monday morning quarterback, there are obviously things that, that could have been done. And probably she reached out at least in somewhat, but the ball was dropped somewhere. And not probably just one time. Um, there's something along the lines of where someone had to have seen something and it just didn't rise to that level enough of intervention of where, you know, James' life could have been saved. Yeah. And also James has a biological father. So, um, and, and he and his side of the family were very upset at the beginning. And what we don't know is, was he able to help? Um, or was there something going on with their relationship where he couldn't help? Or we don't know, but but there could have been an avenue there. Obviously, at this point, all of this is moot because poor little James is dead. But we, we do like to look at this because, it, like you said, when it comes to mental health and when people are crying out for help, you know, it's got to be taken seriously. And we've got to figure out a way to help people because this is not the result that we want to see for anyone, for anyone. So there's that. And then the Cincinnati Enquirer reports that during her competency evaluation, Brittany said that she had given birth to four children. Remember, it was James, his two siblings, those three, and then the other one. So she gave up the other child, her firstborn, for adoption, because when that child was born, Brittany was 12. She was a child herself, just a few years older than James, twice as old as James. Hmm. Court documents say that Brittany was removed from her father's custody at age 12 because she had been repeatedly raped and sexually abused. She stayed in the foster care and group care system until she was 18. So, you know, I... I, I I always look to all of you for looking for the compassion here. So now that we know this about Brittany, is that a mitigating factor here, Robert? Oh, definitely. In terms of her background, what she has experienced, 
being a victim of a sexual assault at 12 foster care system until she was 18. And then this happens, I believe like, you know, almost a little over a decade later. Um, so who knows in terms of what else she's experienced and trying to stay on her feet or what other issues she's been dealing with. So all of those things factor in for a mitigating sentence. Uh, so even so saying that, um, I don't think it's egregious or outside the, you know, the bounds or miscarriage of justice if she had received a lesser sentence in terms of still pleading to murder, um, but received something less in terms less in terms of when she's eligible for parole. But probably like, you know, we've mentioned the lack of remorse throughout the horrific nature in terms of, of James's final moments of being the mother and if there's anyone who is supposed to protect her child you're saying it, it's her and you she abandoned her child in those final moments i think that's probably what struck the judge or those things in combination struck the judge the most to where you have these mitigating factors but the judge stating or i'm assuming ruling that the aggravating factors of this case out outweigh those mitigating factors which is why you know judges say i'm going to issue a sentence which is above the maximum, so to speak, in terms of when you're eligible to for parole. But and all those things could, could have weighed in. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, not at all. Um, it, what's interesting here is that the, her final sentence, I, I was wondering if you could explain this. It, the, the quotes from the reporting um, are, are as follows. She was sentenced in Butler County Common Pleas Court, which is kind of like Pennsylvania. They have a Common Pleas Court <laughs> system as well. And the in... Indefinite sentence means that her final sentence will be determined by the Ohio Parole Board. So that's interesting. So I guess she will then come up for parole and then they will decide whether she can or cannot be released. And so she could ultimately end up with a life sentence then? Right. And like some states have that here in North Carolina, we no longer have parole. Um, so as soon as you get sentenced, you serve. But yeah, so in Ohio, after 21 years, she would go before the board and the board would determine that based on in terms of what she has done since she's been in, has she been rehabilitated and deserves to be released or they could deny parole and then she'd be eligible for sometime later for another review hearing. So she could get out after 21 or she could never get out. And that's the uncertainty for her. All right. Well, it'll be very interesting to hear everyone's comments on whether you all believe that justice has been served. Before we move on to our next case, here is a quick word from our sponsor. If you haven't heard about Ana Luisa yet, it is time that we change that. Ana Luisa was founded to bring clarity to the jewelry industry. They design pieces that start with recycled materials whenever possible, transparent business practices, and always small batches that are kind to the earth. In fact, I'm actually wearing some of the jewelry. It's called their signet ring. And I love this one because it's got a lot of heft to it. I have to tell you, I do a lot of shopping on Instagram for jewelry. And sometimes you get flimsy stuff, but that's not what you get with Ana Luisa. And in fact, these necklaces, because I can't layer them myself. This is also from Ana Luisa. Here, let me turn it around so you could see it. Ana Luisa's beautiful, sustainable jewelry is the perfect gift for yourself or for a friend or for a loved one. Now, to get this special deal of 10% off, go to shop.analuisa.com slash 
True Crime Daily. And be sure to use your special code, which is True Crime Daily. That's shop.analuisa. I'm going to spell it for you. A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A dot com slash True Crime Daily to treat yourself or someone else to a beautiful piece of jewelry and get 10% off. One more time. That's shop.analuisa, A-N-A. L-U-I-S-A dot com slash True Crime Daily. And the code is True Crime Daily. Our next case covers a lot of ground from the East Coast out to the Rocky Mountains and down to Florida. A woman on a cross-country trip with her boyfriend, who's also been referred to as her fiance, goes missing. Now, the boyfriend is back in Florida. She's still missing and he's not talking. The woman is originally from Blue Point, New York, which is in Suffolk County on Long Island, and that is where her family is. On Monday of this week, Suffolk County police announced that they are investigating the disappearance of 22-year-old Gabrielle Gabby Petito. Gabby's family reported her missing on the night of September 11th. Family members told police that they were last in contact with Gabby on August 25th and that she was in the Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. Now, Robert, I would think initially with a case like this where you have people traveling cross country and then you don't hear from them and they're adults, I would think that the police tend to lag a little bit on on reacting to something like this. Am I misreading that? No, I think that's that's definitely fair to say, because what I was thinking of when you have someone that's on a cross country trip and then they disappear, probably one question is going to be who has jurisdiction, um, which agency is in charge of this missing persons case. So that probably takes some time in terms of the coordinating with, OK, well, you know, station or police station A will call police station B. Um, do you all mind in terms of going out there just looking? Because there's not a crime. Um, so it's not something, it's not a crime at this point. So it's not something that rises to the level, I assume, of a high priority call. Um, so that probably adds to it as well. And I do believe that, you know, once families get very involved and start taking to social media and they pressure, they put pre- public pressure on investigating agencies to take this seriously. And that's what Gabby's family has done in this case. They have they have pushed and pushed and pushed, and now they're finally getting some traction with investigators. The question is not that it is it too late, it's just that with this time and the jurisdictions and the distance, so much evidence could have been lost. So much. But we we still don't know what happened to Gabby. I mean, that that's right. still like, did something horrible happen to Gabby? Did Gabby have an accident? Did Gabby take off? You know, how many times have police turned to families and said, well, what if she's just taken off? I mean, right. but as we know, most people just don't do that. Some do. But most do not just disappear like that. So police said that Gabby and her boyfriend, who's 23-year-old Brian Laundrie, were off on an adventure. They were traveling in a white 2012 Ford Transit van with Florida license plates. So on Sunday, family and friends launched the Find Gabby Facebook page. Again, family just being very active. And what's really interesting is that Gabby and Brian, as they were on this adventure, they were posting videos and photos everywhere on social media, which is very interesting because you you see her, it provides you really a map, if you will, just based on the social media footprint of where they were 
and then that stops. Right. Right. Well, and that's what makes it more in terms of suspicious um, in that, like I said, you're following them on social media, YouTube, whatever, or any other accounts they have. You're seeing in terms of where they're going. Um, they're posting regularly. And then it gradually starts to trail off till it gets to the point of where there's nothing. Um, and obviously that causes family concern as to like what happened to her. Um, and that perhaps maybe gives when we talk about I was thinking, well, is it the proverbial needle in a haystack? For law enforcement, you know, where do you, where do you look? You have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles, but if they say, well, this is the last known location. And then she's, we don't hear anything after this. And we know this is the track that they travel. Then maybe that helps them narrow down their search and maybe focus on that area. Absolutely. So on Monday in Florida, where the boyfriend lives, a lot going on this week, right? Between the police out on Long Island and the police in Florida. So on Monday, the Northport Police Department, which is on the Gulf side of Florida between Sarasota and Fort Myers, announced that that police department is joining the investigation along with the FBI to find Gabby. Okay. So now you have three jurisdictions that we know of that are involved. And we know there are going to be more simply because of where we believe she was last seen alive. So the family says that Gabby and Brian left Northport to go on an extended van life camping trip across the country, originally heading for Oregon on July 2nd. And Gabby was reportedly staying and living with Brian in Northport. So the van, according to police, belonged to Gabby. And it is currently in police custody in Florida. Okay. Now a little bit on van life. Um, you know, it's got its own hashtag and it's got its own following where people are kind of documenting this more nomadic way of life and converting these vans and doing these cross country adventures, very bohemian kind of lifestyle. And, um, I actually want to bring in Owen, if we can, for one second. Owen, Michael, our producer, because I've got a question for him and an update. Um, because we thought, hi, Owen, thanks for coming on. <laughs> so, Owen, we thought that we had a last sighting for Gabby, right? In the Grand Tetons. But, but there's an update this morning out of Moab, Utah where police there are now saying that they report they were called to an incident involving Gabby and her boyfriend, but neither one of them called the cops? Yes, uh, I've got some information on that. And in fact, even in the last uh, couple of hours, there's more law enforcement updates. This thing is uh, developing as we speak this week. Again, we're recording this uh, on the morning of Wednesday, September 15th. Uh, police in Utah did confirm to a couple of uh, outlets, including Fox News, Deseret News newspaper and KSL. Uh, Moab police said uh, officially our, our officers did respond to an incident involving Brian Laundrie and Gabrielle Petito on 12 August 2021. However, near, neither Brian or Gabrielle were the reporting party. That's according to the Moab chief of police. Officers conducted an investigation and determined that insufficient evidence existed to justify criminal charges, he said. So not a lot of information there as far as what the nature of the call was, but somehow there was some interaction um, 
with them there. There's an Instagram post from Gabby on that day where they were sort of climbing around some slick rock out there and somebody near them got stuck. There's no mention of any uh, police incident or anything like that kind of adds to the mystery of this. I do have a couple of other law enforcement uh, updates as well this morning. North Point Police this morning in Florida, they confirmed that they are now uh, the lead investigating agency on this case. Uh, they confirmed that Brian Laundrie is now officially a, quote, a person of interest in the case. They said uh, he has not made himself available to be inter interviewed by investigators. He's not provided any helpful details. They said this morning that uh, Laundrie, has re he returned to Florida on September 1st. Remember, he was the one that drove her van back to Florida without her. Right. Um, she wasn't reported by her family until this last weekend on September 11th. But uh, they've confirmed that he was actually back on September 1st. Um, so, also, Owen, yeah, Owen uh, I want to ask you something, if, if I may interrupt you. So one of the things we were discussing is, I think it was like two, three weeks ago on the podcast, we had a case, again, out of Moab. Like, all of a sudden, this is like on fire, on yeah. right? We had a double, a double homicide of a married couple, two women who were living the van life, right? They had three vehicles. They had, you know, a van that they lived in, a car, and they also had a motorcycle. The two of them were found dead, still no leads. They worked in town and, and they camped for, you know, their lifestyle. So, I got to ask you, Owen, and I have to ask you, Robert, what are the chances we have so many things going on in Moab, Utah? I mean, what the heck's going on here? Seems like not the kind of place that you want to drive your van through. That's the type of life that you're living. Um, but it does add, you know, does cause concern in terms of you see, have two seemingly unrelated cases, um, but two different instances of people living that same type of lifestyle. One we know did result in homicide and one, we have a disappearance under mysterious, suspicious circumstances that we don't know if it's going to result in her being located or if that's going to result in something more sinister. What do you think, Owen? Uh, I think, yeah, Moab has their hands full. It's a relatively small town, but it's known for adventure tourism. Uh, it's big with uh, campers and, and backpackers and, and uh, climbers and all sorts of things like that. So they definitely don't want bad um, tourism details happening right now. You're talking about, Anna, the, the case of uh, Kylan Schulte and Crystal Turner. They were living the van life. They were living off the grid. They had told friends about a creepy camper that was near them. Um, they said they were moving their campsite and then the next day they were found or over the weekend, they were found, uh, uh, shot to death. Some new details have come out on that case this week, but it's still unsolved. There's still, um, someone out there that, uh, did this, uh, again, the only connection here is just the, the, the location, the geography of it, but, uh, it is, um, it's, it's quite a story and you have to wonder if you're traveling the West this summer, there's something else uh, going on, not to make uh, people paranoid. No, absolutely. But I really wanted your insight on that because I'm like, what are the chances we have, you know, two very tough cases out of a very tiny, minute little police department, you know, and don't forget that it was the Moab police department. They said it themselves. They'd never had a double homicide to investigate. So That's that right. always makes me very concerned mm. that they have, you know, the resources and the skill set right. to deal with it. Uh, that's right. Um, and we should say that Moab is, uh, you know, this is in Utah. 
apparently Gabby Petito has been confirmed seen in Wyoming before she was last, before she sort of went silent. Um, so ostensibly she made it all the way up to Wyoming, but still, um, you know, who knows what kind of uh, connections all this uh, Mountain West stuff has. Yeah. So apparently they checked out of a hotel in Salt Lake City on August 24th. And then on August 25th, Gabby called the family telling them that she was in Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. Her family says that is the last place where she was seen and that they were headed to Yellowstone. Now, this is also very interesting. The family says that they received a text from Gabby's phone on August 30th. Okay. So that would be six days later, six days later. And the mother says, I'm just not sure it was Gabby who wrote that text. Right. And you can't really, there's no way to probably authenticate. That's the problem with like with text messages. You can always say it came from the person's phone, but you can't say with a 100%, you know, definity that it was that person. Um, And then, so it's probably hard, I guess, like for the family, I guess, to be able to say that they know the last time they spoke to her. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Owen. Robert and I are continuing. Thanks, Owen. You got it. See you guys in a few. See you, Owen. Okay, Robert. So here's the other thing that the boyfriend ends up, as you said, driving the van back to his house in Florida. Now, the police have confiscated it. They towed it to the yard and they have it in their possession. And they, of course, are now checking it for forensics, looking to figure out if there are any clues within the van. So I I have to wonder, even though he is not talking to authorities, isn't that his right? I'm not defending this by any means. I mean, because you've got Gabby's family, they're losing their mind because they're so fearful of what happened to their daughter. But he is not talking to authorities and he has an attorney. So what happens now? Can the police say, okay, we know you have an attorney, but you still have to come in and talk? Or how does that work? Right. Um, He has the constitutional right not to talk to law enforcement. Um, And any defense attorney would tell him that. And I tell clients that all the time, especially here. He's now been moved up to a person of interest, which is right below a, you know, actual suspect. He gains nothing by going into law enforcement and telling them. Um, and And that's not even whether the person is guilty or not guilty. You should never go in. Well, I always recommend you never go in and speak to law enforcement without talking to your lawyer first. Your lawyer needs to be able to see in terms of what information are we dealing with, how to navigate that. And if it's something that should be shared with law enforcement, they can they can do that. But if there's anything that implicates them whatsoever, even minutely, um, it's in his best interest in terms of to not speak to law enforcement. And I know that's terrible when you say it out loud at times, or if you look at it from the family's viewpoint where they're saying, we just need to know what happened um, to our daughter. But his attorney is looking out for Brian's best interest. And it's in Brian's best interest not to speak to law enforcement. And the local police department in Florida have said quite publicly, and I'm sure this is all part of keeping the pressure up, is that they find it very concerning. That's the word that they use. Very concerning that he was probably the last person to see Gabby, yet he is not participating in finding Gabby. So there's nothing about this that they think sits right with them. Right. And law enforcement can say that all day long. Um, But if we're looking like with a defense attorney hat on, it's better to 
be thought suspicious than to actually be charged with a crime. Um, and if there's any chance that could happen, then he has to keep quiet. Now, of course, they're claiming that Brian has provided some information through his attorney, and that may very well be. You know, we we don't know the details of everything right. here. So he may be providing some level of uh, cooperation, but not to the point of sitting down for an interview, which is what the police would really like here. So right. in the meantime, the two jurisdictions, the Suffolk County Police and the Northport Police and the FBI, excuse me, so three jurisdictions now, are looking into bank statements, the travel itineraries, looking at the social media footprint and trying to figure out, okay, when do we know for sure that Gabby was last seen and under what circumstances? So I think that there is a lot more that is going to come out. I think what is going to be helpful to this case, Robert, is the fact that they documented so much of their journey on social media. I think that actually will help. Yeah, I agree in terms of they know by documenting on social media, that's allowed, like we mentioned earlier, that's allowing law enforcement to backtrack to say, hey, this is everywhere that you guys went. And you think presumably that they interacted with people, maybe they made friends in terms or, you know, and Gabby said that she was keeping in contact with certain people that they met on the way. Did she share information about Brian? Were there any issues that they had? We know about the law enforcement seeing them on August 12th that someone else called law enforcement and they law enforcement has stated they were unable or was insufficient evidence to charge anyone at that time. That leads you to speculate, was this some type of domestic violence incident? Uh, and that Gabby said that she didn't want to go forward and there was nothing to corroborate. But knowing in terms of all that documentation, where they were traveling from, that allows them to interview more people. And inevitably, you're going to have people who saw something, people that can provide more insight into perhaps maybe Brian and Gabby's relationship and what all was going on during this trip. And as far as their relationship, Gabby's mother told NBC News that the couple met in high school. They began dating a couple of years ago, and then Gabby ended up moving to Florida to live with him. So this is not like someone she met recently. This is someone who's been a long-term partner of hers. So a lot more information, I think, to come on this one. And and it must just be so agonizing for Gabby's family. I can't even imagine. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, it is time for comments. This is the section in which we share all the crime stories that you all are talking about. Well, look at you, Owen. You're back again. Hello, Owen. <laughs> well, hello, Anna. Hello, Robert. <laughs> hey, how are you, Owen? Good. We uh, we get comments. We read them all. It's a it's a it's a it's a tough slog, but we get through them well. Sometimes um, we even answer. I do. <laughs> oh, we do. We try to interact, and we do. We definitely appreciate everybody's input. Uh, stop by on our social media channels and uh, check our content out. Police in Athens, Alabama, responded to a 3:30 a.m. motel fire last week. The suspect, identified as 44-year-old Robert Ledbetter, told officers someone had followed him from Nashville and tried to get into his room through the air conditioning unit on the wall. Police said Ledbetter piled furniture near the door, then threw the microwave and the mini fridge into the bathtub to keep the person coming through the shower. Yes. Then police say, <laughs> naturally, uh, then police say when he couldn't get out the door, presumably because of the piled up furniture, he allegedly lit a curtain on fire and broke a window with his motorcycle helmet to escape the room. Ledbetter was arrested for criminal mischief and arson. Police did say there was no evidence anyone was trying to break into the room. Michael N. said, that's messed up. 
Yes, could be. I uh, thought the same thing. Kevin L. said, damn, appliances wouldn't work in this cheap-ass motel. And uh, Matt W. said, that's my long-lost cousin. Uh, apologies to Matt uh, W. there. I uh, hope everything goes better with your family. We'll keep mm. you posted when we know more about uh, who's trying to break in or what was going on there. Yeah, yeah I'm, st- I'm still not clear on why the fire was needed. <laughs> It seemed to make sense to him. Uh, you know, this is a, a course of events here. Who can say? Um, I, I am going to venture that. Uh, uh, I'm not going to venture anything. I, no. I have no idea what was going on with this guy. Yeah, I was trying to say and that escalated quickly in terms of I, I'm with you in terms of someone's trying to break in as crazy as that sounds through the air conditioning unit. Um, you mm-hmm. have to throw stuff at them. I see all that. But then lighting the fire, that's where he lost me. Yeah. <laughs> he had you till the fire. I got you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, the skills of a criminal defense attorney. <laughs> yeah, we, we can work with everything but the fire. That's right. <laughs> we will let Mr. Ledbetter know that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Owen. We'll see you next week. Bye, guys. See you then. All right. I see you. That's our episode for this week. Robert, thank you so much for coming back. We so appreciated. Where can people find you if they need an attorney or follow you on social media? Oh, sure. I'm located in Charlotte, North Carolina. If they need an attorney anywhere in North Carolina, they can call us and find us on social media at either the Corbett Law Firm, CLT on Instagram or Robert K. Corbett ESQ on Instagram as well. Excellent. Are you still doing your movie and TV lines, the, the, the role playing of those on Instagram? We had slowed down a little bit, so now I just have a bunch in queue that I need to go ahead and upload. So every time I watch a movie, I just watched one uh, a couple of days ago with my son. I saw um, one during the closing argument scene. I thought, okay, that's a good one. I need to go ahead and upload that and provide some commentary. So I need to get back to it. Probably start back this weekend. Okay, because I thought like, wait a minute, I follow you on social media and I'm like, wait a minute, Robert, I'm missing the videos. (laughs) Is your son not directing you anymore? What's happening here? (laughs) Yeah, he's in charge of social media. So uh, in order to get his allowance, he needs to get back on that. So I'll remind him when he gets out of school today. Important to learn to work for a living. (laughs) Oh, definitely. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. video games aren't cheap, so... (laughs) Thanks, Robert. We appreciate it. So you you can always find me on social media at Anna G News, Anna with one N. Of course, you can get our show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to True Crime Daily's YouTube channel. That way you'll get all the alerts on when we've got something new out there. Also, subscribe to our newsletter at TrueCrimeDaily.com because Owen puts those together. Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. <laughs>